Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright from Fondue and You. <laughs> Today, we are talking about Minute 78, which begins with Private Lorraine getting up close and personal, and ends with Stark telling Steve he's working to keep Steve and his men from getting killed. Back on the show today, we have Jason Dittmer, author of Captain America and the Nationalist Superhero. Welcome back, Jason. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. We are coming in on a hot and heavy moment between Private Lorraine and Steve as uh, she grabs him and pulls him back by his tie out of view of everybody else so she can lay one on him. Um, This is (laughs) Steve's acting like this is kind of his first kiss. (laughs) How I mean, how does this play for you? Does it work? Well, you know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you heard our minute yesterday, you know, our thoughts on, the, on the, yeah. the yeah, you know, it's fine. It's kind of like it It just once again, every micro move in this minute is in this sort of sequence. This exchange is so broad, like the fact that they're kissing and then they're interrupted and Steve turns and like wipes his mouth off. And it's just like all kind of gross and, and two broad strokes for me. So I, you know, and I'm, I'm all about the kissing. Don't get me wrong. You give me a good kissing scene any day, but it's just, it's played for cheapness and I'm, I'm not crazy about it. I mean, isn't it uh kind of broad and, cheesy and a bit awkward exactly what first kisses are supposed to be right they they're never the cinematic um you know uh the music swells their lips gently touch and glisten you know it's (laughs) if you if i think for most of us our first kiss was probably um something horrific that we would never want to have on film Um, i I would agree though that the scene (laughs) (laughs) sorry i forgot this is the the lothario minute um but i think uh I think it's um, yeah, it's it's not a great scene, but as as we said in the previous episode, I think it, it serves a purpose uh, in the plot um, and it fulfills utility that. minute. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's getting us from here to there is really what's happening with the scene. It, it, I mean, yeah, again, with what we learned in She-Hulk, it's like I, I really struggle that he is acting this way. And obviously they didn't know where later projects were going to, um, you know, kind of take his character arc and stuff. I I would guess the way that it's playing here is that likely Chris Evans, Joe Johnston, the writers, everybody uh, was kind of leaning on the fact that this likely is his first kiss. Like it feels like they're playing it that way. It doesn't feel like this is a guy who's been, um, you know, um, hanging out for months with all the USO dancers uh, as they travel around the country and the world. This does feel very much like it's designed to be a first kiss. And so it's, I don't know, it's it's interesting that it's set up that way. I mean, Steve does, you know, he doesn't pull away from it. He does put his hands on her waist and, and uh, you know, I mean, he is fully accepting once things get going before uh, Peggy does interrupt. Unlike you, Pete, I do find the interruption actually quite funny when she very kind of sharply says captain and they break the kiss so suddenly i actually think that plays pretty well and maybe it's because of how quickly steve throws himself backwards away from (laughs) away from private lorraine like it's it's pretty comical and so to that end 
you know, I that moment I think is fun. Well, and and to lean in on your I, I think both of you, your collective defense of the moment yesterday, as feeble as I think it was, uh, I I do think that all of that setup that I find too broad leads to one very important exchange, which is right now after the kiss, which is you don't know a damn thing about women, do you? Like you haven't learned a thing. Well, of course he's not. He just had his first kiss. But we have to like this moment of reminding us, the audience, that he is still tiny Steve in at least some way, shape or form, like tiny, inexperienced, naive Steve, who's just kind of fumbling around, even though he's wearing the shell of this impressive, like dominating masculine figure is, I think, uh, an important note for this for the origin story of Captain America. He still has a lot to learn. Yeah, yeah. Um, TVtropes.org lists this kiss as uh, the forceful kiss trope. <laughs> Is that even the forceful kiss trope? Yeah, it's when you're being uh, pushed into a kiss that you weren't uh, uh, expecting or perhaps wanting. Hmm. Is it like in Aliens when the little mouth that is the forceful kiss? Yeah, that's the one. Very forceful. Yeah, right. No kidding. I mean, I think there's something about the kind of dialogue about how he doesn't, you know, there's a line in there that I think is quite interesting where she says, you're just like all the others now. You know, you wanted to be a soldier and now you're just like them. And that, I think that's an interesting line. It kind of does a lot of work, both because he's clearly not like all the other soldiers, right? I mean, he's Captain America, um, but she's kind of putting him into that pile, right? In the, you know, if in the previous episode or two episodes ago, we were talking about how um, you know, his power and his kind of charisma and his looks and everything kind of make him the center of everything. And she's kind of saying, you're not the center of everything. You're just like everyone else. And at the same time, you know, what she's really doing also is implying that part of the thing, reason she was attracted to him was for that kind of moral fortitude that, you know, is so central to the character of Captain America. And she sees this break of his discipline as a kind of weakness, right? That that makes him less desirable, right? So it's interesting because I think it's it's kind of playing with his character and kind of setting the boundaries of what's acceptable for him. Well, and I, I think it's even more interesting in that light to look at her and the choices they made for her around her dress, like what she's wearing, because we talked two minutes ago about the value, uh, the cultural value in the scene of the red dress as she was, you know, to use your term, peacocking. And here we've we've put her in like her practical, just white blouse, plain dress. There is no. Uh, moniker of rank on her at all, right? There, she's she is just here a woman, but she is not in the big showy red dress, which to my eye means that she or or makes her more sort of vulnerable as a woman to this kind of slight, given what we've seen of their of their uh, relationship in the last two minutes, and also uh, that that sort of allows her to demonstrate the practical center of power in the scene. Right? She has been slighted, but she is still an authority in their relationship, and I think it's I think it's a great choice not to put her in a uniform uh, that you know traditional uniform. Uh, for that reason, it yeah, it it keeps it from like there's still a balance of you know you know Agent Carter and Steve Rogers, but it doesn't feel like she's just the militaristic like person who's in this particular scene. She feels like she's the human who's in this scene, right? And and that works that works in context of the way they're playing it. Um, TV tropes does list this part of the film as the woman scorned trope. So they, they just it's amazing <laughs> how many tropes you find in a project. Um, and, of course, we get the return of fun doing, as, as Pete brought up. This is where Steve tries to throw a retort at her 
she caught him in a kiss with Private Lorraine, and so now he's trying to use it on her by accusing her of fondueing with Howard Stark. Uh, we had seen the fondueing bit uh, play out a little bit up on the plane as they were taking him to uh, jump over the uh, the factory, and here we have the return of it. Um, does does fondueing sound like something sexy? Does it sound like, oh, okay, they're doing some kinky bedroom games? Is that... Uh, how does that read for the two of you if you don't know what it is? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this the last in the airplane scene when they had their the first time fondueing came up. And I think I, I'm pretty sure I landed on. Yeah, I don't think he I, I think he you know, I don't think he's really that obtuse not to know what fondue is. But clearly he is right. We need Howard to explain what fondueing is bread and cheese. Not to be super dorkus here, but I think uh, in the United States, I think fondue was a kind of 1960s yeah. um, phenomenon. And so probably a lot of, especially working class people, wouldn't have known what fondue was in the 1940s. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, just to go yeah, right. deep dive yeah, right. on history. No, yeah. um, I suppose 70s, actually, really is more fondue era. Right. Um, I, I think they missed a trick here because they could have had, you know, Howard kind of giving him a, you know, a... a because she kind of says, you don't know anything about women. And then it cuts to him doing the fondue line. Uh, and really, he could have said something about teaching him the fondues and fondants of women. <laughs> an appropriately long yeah. gap between the joke good. and the I'm going to call that Zoom lag. I'm, I assume we can <laughs> <laughs> the fondues and the fondants. And the fondants. That would have been perfect. And, you know, coming from Howard, a Stark, that would have been the appropriate person to deliver that. Right, right. Uh, I also really think that he should have had a fondue pot just somewhere in the background of his lab. <laughs> we get in there like, yeah, yeah. how funny would that have been just to have like him obsessed with fondue? <laughs> <laughs> like a later shawarma right. joke there's, exactly. the... there's a there's a uh short there is a short that celebrates i'm sure that celebrates the stark fascination with fondue come on marvel one shots <laughs> get it out there yeah we need a one shot <laughs> uh all right um any last thoughts between uh this moment with uh peggy and steve or should we jump into the uh the lab lab all right. lab. My first note about the lab is where's Colonel Phillips, since apparently he was supposed to be meeting with uh, with Howard Stark per Private Lorraine, but uh, he's not here. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he ran to the bathroom as he was getting ready to head out. <laughs> <laughs> he's just in the bathroom. Yeah. That's in the one shot. In. <clears throat> that's, that's all part of the one shot. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, this is where Howard gives him his response about uh, about fondue so that we Steve finally knows what fondue is. It's just a bread and cheese thing and uh, and starts their conversation about women, uh, Stark's perspective of women and the whole idea of don't think that was your first mistake, uh, which does feel very tropey in and of itself. This whole thing feels very tropey. All, this whole moment in the film that we're talking about, it's like trope after trope after trope. Um, I, I feel like it stumbles a lot because of it. And um, I, I mean, as much as I enjoy the characters, I do feel like we're we're kind of in a place where we're dealing with this kind of this romantic 
comedy element of the story and and sometimes it just doesn't play as well as other parts does it work for either of you well because you know who you know who could have written this entire scene is john hughes like this feels right out of a john hughes movie like we need we need the we need the nerd and the the jock to have an exchange like this and this is subverted because it's the nerd who is talking about like he he ends up being the the guy who's so much more suave and experienced but it's still that kind of an exchange yeah, you're right. You could easily imagine it like, you know, walking away from the football field, you know, one arm around the other, you know, the, the, the jock's arm around the nerd being like, you know, yeah. here's what you got to do. Tell you, you know? something about women, bud, you know? Yeah, there's. Yeah. yeah. And, and to that, I mean, it's an interesting that you brought that up because there is very much a vibe like that in stuff like Cyrano de Bergerac, which. Yeah has that same sort of thing like the 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 beautiful specimen of a man is a complete lunkhead and has no concept as to how to actually like converse with the woman and requires this person who is less than because of the way that the story is is told is somebody who has those skills and of course howard you know i I suppose in context of the story you know just being the nerd um you know he's the one who is that that cyrano sort of character who's helping um, the lunkhead find the or just get a better understanding about things. The thing that I like about this is that we're in this lab down here in the Allied headquarters, and this is where it really starts feeling like uh, a a precursor to what Q would be doing in the James Bond films. And I can't help but think that he is one of these assistants here. And really, like the James <laughs> Bond franchise is really part of the MCU. It's just a totally different branch of it. But it all starts here, and Q gets his mad skills of learning all this crazy science from Howard Stark, seeing how things are done in the lab. You know, at some point, somebody might be shooting a gun in the lab without any other protective gear. I feel like this is exactly what Q uh, fell in love with that <laughs> we're going to get here at this point. And there must be something on tropes.com or whatever your website is about uh, about this kind of scene. Absolutely. Too. I haven't even checked. But yeah, there's uh, there's definitely a lot. Um, yeah, it's Generation Xerox. Howard Stark is a large ham, the Casanova, and an ahead of his time genius. Apparently, these were all genetic traits. Also worthy of note, Howard Stark similarly mentions to Steve that he considered himself more of a workaholic and his work takes priority over being the Casanova, has people in his lab working on a motorbike, and, attempt, and attempts to ignore the vibranium shield completely. So it's, yeah, this whole idea of this guy who is just so ahead of his time who is doing this lab work and has all of this crazy stuff here and is just playing it off like there's really nothing there that's essentially the trope that we have here mm-hmm. and as that trope mentioned there is a motorcycle there uh that might also come into play so we're setting things up um but there's really not much more to this minute we kind of end this conversation between the two of them as and we're going to continue it tomorrow is there any other thoughts on this minute i feel like this you know there, there's uh, kind of stuff right before it and right after this minute is kind of this moment between stretching these two things. Uh, any last thoughts about any of these points here? Armory and explosives. 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 Yeah. Is that what it says? Storage. Yeah. So that's what's right behind them. I feel like this is where all of the all of the secrets are. Is what's going on in the lab elsewhere? We've talked about the motorcycle, um, but you know, it it feels almost almost a little too generic for a Marvel walk and talk through a lab. Like I, I want to see, I want to notice more Easter eggs here and I just, I don't have them yet. The only one that I yeah think that we're supposed to notice is the motorcycle, but yeah. did you notice something else, Jason? I didn't see any other Easter eggs either. I mean, I suppose it's too early in a way, isn't it? I mean, right. it, cause 
you can't have Easter eggs for the other movies yet because they're all happening several decades in the future. And, um, you know, there's, they haven't probably even come up with whatever it's going to yeah. be in Captain America 2 or whatever. So, uh, you know, probably limited possibilities yeah. there. The only thing that I would note is that uh, as they first come in, there's a, um, a, a lab worker working on a machine um, in the back that's very well lit. Both he and the machine yeah. are very well lit. And the dials on it, like, I don't uh, I don't think that they had uh, known by this point that Disney was going to swoop in and purchase the entire Marvel franchise. But in <laughs> the context like of... Mouse. In the context of, of Disney, and I don't know if either of you are familiar, but they have things that they call hidden Mickeys all over uh, at their theme parks where there are little secret Mickey Mouse uh, heads, just the shape of the three circles, all over the place. And uh, it's very fun to kind of track down all the hidden Mickeys when you go there. And that almost looks like it could have been a hidden Mickey back there. <laughs> yeah, it really does. That's funny. Yeah, that's funny. It is so intentionally lit. That's the one that made me think because everything else is just sort of a wash and shadow except for that. And it could be what are they making a bread? It's a bread maker or a juice juicer or something. Who knows that? I, I, I kind of delight in wondering what that is. Yeah. The only thing I was going to throw in about the scene, and it relates to the previous minute, too, is I, I haven't compared it to other scenes uh, in the movie because the whole movie is so retro styled. Right. But this looks like they ran the film through a sepia filter and then ran it yeah. through a sepia yeah. filter again. Oh. I mean, they're, everything in the everything in the scene is like various kinds of golds, brasses, coppers. It's it's pretty extreme. <laughs> I mean, you know, and I do wonder if sometimes I mean, it, you know, they obviously went for the kind of rocketeer. um aesthetic uh but you know sometimes it feels like it takes you out of it actually because it's so it's kind of over so well uh, you know to that extent this was a period early in marvel's uh films where they were finding directors who perhaps were allowed a little more flexibility with kind of what they were doing as far as their own styles and stuff like i mean kenneth rana and the dutch angles um, that he brought to Thor, like throughout the entire thing, like it's just constant Dutch angles. And that drove a lot of people nuts because it just felt like it never, it never, like the camera was always tipped. And here it's very much the same thing where it's like, it's always sepia, you know, did Joe run it through the wrong bath and actually accidentally stain everything brown um, when they were processing it? Cause it, it does feel so, so sepia. Um, but I mean, I, I think that's also part of the style. And I guess that's, that's something I think some people might miss in later films, the sense that there was this period early before they really started, you know, locking down and, and really driving Feige's vision uh, more so than the directors, where you did feel like you could have some you know, little differentiation and feel between films. Do you, do you like Joe Johnston as a director, uh, Jason? Do you do you do you follow much of his work? I mean, you brought up the uh, Rocketeer. Obviously, that's. That's something that he had done and has that same tone. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm like a, a super fan or or even or not. You know, um, I mean, I liked I liked this movie uh, quite obviously, and uh, I liked the Rocketeer and so on. But you know, it, it, I think at some points in this, it feels a little just, you know, I mean, we were talking before about the, the prevalence of tropes, you know, and it, it seems to me it's a film that's both trying to be retro and often tropes you know, in their original form are so blunt, you know, they're, you know, they become tropes because they're these go-to mechanisms for conveying something, um, you know, but kind of going back to the, the 1940s, 
you know, could mean a lot of different things, right? You could have a little bit of a sepia tone to things and, and, and kind of handle things differently and you make, make the, make the tropes a little less ham handed, you know, a little less war movie. I mean, war movie tropes are kind of the worst, you know? So, you know, I, I guess it's a point of critique potentially. But, you know, of course, some people obviously like it and I like the movie. I'm not saying it's a bad movie, but it's it's one of those things where you look at it now and you kind of think, oh, God, you know, it's it's you know, there's there's no color in there that isn't kind of a gold or a brown in the entire room. Well, I mean, it definitely has a look, definitely has a style. I uh, I think that we should just uh, wrap this minute up. Actually, you know what? Since we have a little bit of time, um, something we do toward the end of the week, but let's just do it today. Um, we talk about favorite Captain America moments. Um, do you have a moment in any of the films or perhaps one of the comics that you would say is your favorite Captain America moment, Jason? Oh, man, that's like a <laughs> should have prepped me. It's a it's a weird one, but it's one six in my head. Um and I'm, I couldn't tell you. It's, it's from the comics, I think sometime in the 1990s. It's at a stage, you know, the, in the comics, kind of all the Marvel comics go kind of dark, especially in the 90s and the 2000s and so on. You know, it's, everything's a conspiracy. The government's behind it, layers and layers of darkness and people getting corrupted. And, you know, so there's a bit about Sharon Carter, you know, who's this kind of long-term romantic relationship in the comics she's kind of disappeared and, you know, all sorts of horrible things have happened to her and she's become jaded. And, you know, instead of being this kind of the, the younger sister kind of love interest thing that, that she is, she's becomes this kind of really just tortured character. And in the story, the red skull has the cosmic cube, right? Which is the kind of comics version of the Tesseract. And so Captain America is trying to fight and get the, um, the cosmic cube from him and it's all done in this kind of dark colors and you know it's very gritty and sharon carter is helping him and basically the red skull loses the cosmic cube and for a moment captain america catches it and he in the in that whole page they drew it like they did in the 1960s right so it's like a very clear set of bright colors and clear lines and he draws sharon as she was uh, prior to all this stuff happening. It's it's kind of, to me, a remarkable scene that shows what comics can do because the style of the art matters so much, you know? And so, so with, in just a kind of one page, you see how Captain America wishes he could remake the world so that Sharon was what she used to be, you know? But nothing is said. It's all done through the art. And it's kind of a beautiful moment. It's really stuck with me ever wow. since I saw it. That's fascinating. Um, you're right. Like in the history of the comics, they've had so many different artists and styles and, and storytellers behind them. And it's, it's uh, exciting when it's like when they remember that, that they like, Hey, you know, we could do something. We could actually play with that and integrate it into the story to do something unique that way. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. It's fantastic. I think, uh, you know, it's a remarkable medium and, you know, sometimes they don't, do everything with it that they could, you know, they, they're obviously prisoners of today's style. You know, you, you can't just draw comics like it's the 1960s anymore because, you know, it would look dated. But for that moment, it was the kind of a perfect yeah. thing to do. That's awesome. That is awesome. How about you guys? What are your favorite Captain uh, America moments? Well, elements? I haven't read um, as my, many of the comics. And so for me, it really does boil down to the films. And uh, and so many of the big moments, you know, that, that other people have called out, like when he catches Thor's hammer or the Avengers Assemble moment, um, things like that. Like, I feel like there are a lot in, in Endgame that really stand out. I feel like one of them for me that I always uh, think back on is 
not necessarily the moment where he is um um uh racing around the um uh what is it the uh reflecting pool and <laughs> yeah and the whole on your left thing but it's it's more their conversation afterward when they're just kind of sitting down chatting about stuff and and that to me like uh, i i feel like those are the sorts of moments that you get uh, with Captain America, where you have, uh, you know, just it's a simple conversation with Sam, but just like about about the realities of being a soldier and just going and talking to that group and stuff like like things like that. I feel they capture in ways that um, I find surprising sometimes for franchises like this. I think, uh, you know, these are these are very sweet and uh you know, in internal sort of scenes that you guys are talking about. And for me, I'm just going to go the other way and say, before we get started, anybody want to get out? <laughs> uh, the elevator fight with yes, everybody yes. is uh, amazing. And because it makes a perfect callback later, Hail Hydra uh, <laughs> is is just uh, I, I love the the pairing of those sequences. It's an incredible fight, an incredible uh, ex- exhibition yeah. of stunt work and uh, close quarters. So that's it's really fun. I totally agree. That's the. I think if I had to pick one from the movies, that would be my yeah my favorite moment. That was a fun one. All right. Uh, well, let's wrap things up for today. Uh, Jason, remind everybody about uh, you and where they can track down what you're up to. Absolutely. Thanks very much. I'm the the author of a book called Captain America and the Nationalist Superhero, which uh, is available online for uh, purchase, should anyone be so interested. And um, if you're interested in hearing about British politics or uh, cat pictures or anything of the sort, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Real can J. I ask Dimmer. A, a related question. Uh, in all of your research yeah. uh, for Captain America and the Nationalist Superhero, who is your favorite? nationalist superhero what country has the best nationalist superhero <laughs> oh, that's a great one i mean um the i mean captain britain is in some ways the funniest uh because you know he was created in the 1970s basically marvel was trying to kind of launch superheroes as a european sure. phenomenon and so they they set up shop um in the uk and they thought okay well we want to bridge into this so how should we you know, we need a character that'll relate to the British people. And um, the person they got to write it or to, um, I think he wrote it and drew it, I think, um, was uh, Chris Claremont on the basis that he had been born in Britain, but he moved away when he was like two. <laughs> so it's, he didn't he didn't really know anything about Britain. He's and just so writing Captain Britain based up with, on the stereotypes in his head? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's it's terrible, and it doesn't do well. I mean, so that's what's funny about it is that they kind of start him with this like Arthurian legend kind of a thing um, as the basis of his power, and but the British people are like, what? <laughs> you know, nobody nobody relates to this, and so like every sort of ten or twenty issues, they kind of relaunch him. They give him a new origin story. You know, they change his powers. It's it's a hot mess. And at one point for the for the book, I interviewed um, this guy who was currently writing Captain Britain after sort of like 40 years into this. You know, he's, he's never sustained publication, but he keeps popping up in different comics like Excalibur and so on. And um, and I said, do you find any problems with trying to understand this stuff? Uh, you know, uh, and he said, yeah, when I joined, when they asked me to write Captain Britain and he went to the keepers of continuity. There's like these people who work at Marvel comics who have like the whole, they maintain the database of like 
which characters have been in which stories and what are the major events that happened. So that when someone says, I want to write a story with this character, they say, well, this is where he's at currently. Because, of course, he could be appearing in all these different comics. And um, he says, I went to the Keepers of Continuity and I said, can you tell me uh, what is the base? for Captain Britain's powers right now. And they said, we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's, it's it, to me, it's a great case study because it's like this kind of thing where they're trying to latch on to something that's essentially yeah. British. But especially if you, if you live over here, you realize there isn't a lot that's essentially British. Everyone argues about everything. Um, it's actually a country of many nations and all competing histories and nationalisms and all kinds of things. And so... Um, it, it, it's a it, that, that's I think my favorite one to study. That's it's just funny. That is funny. Where where do you um, like draw the line in deciding who is kind of the nationalist superhero for any particular country? Because I know like there was also the U- Union Jack, um, who you know, we've kind of yes. touched on very briefly through Fallsworth here in this film. But like, I mean, would he fall into that or or? There's no great way to define a nationalist superhero. Um, so I will tell you, he is in the book. I talk about him. I talk about Captain Britain. They're actually two. Speaking of this problem of kind of speaking to Britishness, they, of course, Captain Britain was a lord, right? He was a of lord course. who had a manor house and everything. And everyone in Britain was like, thumbs down, <laughs> you know, we hate rich people and so on. And so then Union Jack was introduced in the 1970s at the same time in The Invaders, right? So The Invaders was this retro World War II story written in the 1970s. And um, and he's a, the, the, the kind of working class character um, in contemporary days. So when, when they write him back in World War II, he's a lord as well. But in Union Jack comics, he becomes uh, this working class version. So you get different versions of kind of Britishness being put forward by these different characters. Um, but the, the practical co- answer to your question is, um, I, I basically said whoever, you know, you had to kind of represent the country, preferably you would, um, have some version of like the flag, uh, in your uniform or your name would refer to the country or, but in the end, it was kind of whatever I thought seemed relevant. Um, the, the one hard and fast rule was, was I was never going to include Superman, even though in many ways he meets the definition, but who has time to read them all? Because I, it took me like a decade to read all the Captain Americas <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's way more Superman than there are Captain America. So alien anyway. I thought, yep, my definition <laughs> right. ends there. Alien. Uh, yeah. Interesting. So Interesting. anyway, it was, um, Practical decisions, shall we say. I don't know much about Captain Britain at all, but my only understanding is, and and the thing that makes it funny to me hearing you talk about it is in the Lego Marvel superheroes game, uh, Captain Britain has a British flag Mini Cooper. And I don't think that's comic canon, but it (laughs) slays me to watch that that interact with that car. Maybe maybe he's actually Austin Powers and is the same person. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. All right. Well, check that book out. You can get all sorts of interesting uh, uh, facts and tidbits in there. And uh, yeah, we'll be back tomorrow to talk about Minute 79. So uh, thank you. uh, Thank you, Jason. And Pete, thanks as always. Andy, I think you could play a nationalist superhero. Until next time, true believers. Do it. Do it. (laughs) Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega. And this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. 
Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.